0: Um, Robbie, I see you're driving. You want me to start this off, or do you want to start off?
1: He's still driving, I think.
0: He's still driving. Okay. Yeah, that's
1: why I'm giving you that's why I'm giving you time to Press okay, yourself I, and give him time to get home.
0: You know, you know, the studio of Ian and Steve's day was vastly different from the studio that endured after they went to jail, even right. though I think it was a slower metamorphosis. And when you walked into the studio of the 70s, you were walking into this this ridiculously magical place. Oh, Scott Bromley. Love Scott. He was the architect. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you were walking into this really magical place and it was fantasy land. And anyone who was picked from the outside walked down that wondrous hallway entry with the beautiful big chandeliers and you pay your entrance and you'd check your coat and you'd hear the muffle from f- 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 the doors and as soon as the doors had opened the music would blast and you were enveloped by this this I don't know, it was like this all-encompassing mood um, it was total abandonment you had the usual suspects that you would find at any bar, anywhere but there was an element of over-the-top that didn't exist at every bar, everywhere. And I think that's what made Studio special, whether it was the drag queens or the naked people on during the week. Uh, you know, Thursdays and Sundays were famously much more uh, gay-influenced than the weekends. The weekends were perhaps more celebrity-influenced than some of the weekdays you know but wherever whenever you were there it didn't matter there was always a touch of magic you always ran into the possibility existed that some movie star could buy you a drink and hit on you that night right or whatever um you know uh and everyone was on equal footing and i think that was probably the most interesting aspect of studio people who could have Um, you know push the VIP buttons as it were they were right in the thick of it with everybody else they might have had a special little VIP couch where they sat and there was a little stanchioned off area and you know every but John Q everybody did not go and sit on that couch but on the Mm -hmm. dance floor we were all equal we were all the same incredible I remember one night I had to chase Halston around the dance floor for forever because he borrowed my tambourine and he wouldn't give it back to me.
1: <laughs> that's crazy. But that's what you had in studio. I know, I know, you know, Steve Rebell had, cause Nikki Siano always tells me his, his take on it before it happened. He used to Steve Rebell would come to a gallery and he would tell Nikki, that he had this ideas in his mind that he wanted to have these stars in a place. So, this was something that was projected for a while. Nikki told me. While
0: well, he had uh, Enchanted Forest or Enchanted,
1: Enchanted Gardens Garden, you know? in Queens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 I think Ian was involved in that a bit as well, but on the administrative business end, not the, not the creative end. Right. And, and oddly enough, I pro- well, two oddly enough, I was always at. 54, whether I was going to meet friends and dance, there's Roy and Bobby De Silva, uh, the lighting guy in the booth, um, whether I was going to meet Roy or going to meet friends or there for a party or to promote records or whatever. Uh, and one night I happened to be there early with Roy and Michael Overington, the manager, asked if I was going to be around and would I mind filling in at code check because he was short. So that's the only night I ever really got a paycheck from 54 was when I worked at co check. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is odd, a, right? wait, not even from the wave. Not even from the check. Probably from all the tips. <laughs> I'm telling you, those were some. Uh, the check
0: was nothing. <laughs> the, the tips, right? The tips were amazing. <laughs> I
1: kept saying to Michael, "Do you need anyone to co-check tonight?" <laughs> yeah, you didn't want to do lights. You want to do co-check? Could you imagine just taking home one of the um. One of the minx, or you know, somebody coming in one of those fancy coats in the winter—crazy, right?
0: There was, and the Cochet girls were great. I, I'm still friends with some of them from the day. The Harris sisters—you know—we just had so much fun. It was—it was a fun place. Everything was fun about it. The bartenders were fun. Uh, Eddie Packen and Bobby Petty, who were the twirling bartenders. Do you remember them? They would spin mm-hmm. too much of the studio frequently. No,
1: later on. Later on, you know, uh, I wasn't uh, old enough you, yet to go. At,
0: at that incarnation. Sorry,
1: I wasn't old enough yet to come at that time. I, there I were a few it.
0: incarnations. I think it was Mark Fleischman who took it over. Yeah, the second they, one. The boys went to jail. And then I know that uh, uh, Michael Fesco used to do Sundays at studio,
1: and Mark Berkeley.
0: He, he had a whole big thing there. Yeah. Robbie used to work at studio simultaneous with when we worked together at the Red Parrot. And I'm going to take a wild guess. I maybe started at the Red Parrot 83 or 84 in that vicinity. Okay. Um, And I know that there were a lot of nights I would go visit him at studio. Right. Or stop by after work or whatever.
1: Um, But you weren't working lights at studio, correct? Or were you?
0: No, I wasn't. I was those, those were my music industry days.
1: Just music, just
0: friend, Or I was there promoting records or working on a press event or some such. Um, But by the time I started doing lights, I was working at New York, New York. So, and I went from there to Bonds when Bonds opened. Right. So I would go to studio after work or on nights when I wasn't working. But Chances are pretty good at when at New York, New York. I used to work, I used to tag off with another one of the lighting guys. So yeah, I'm. But I, but I never like got a paycheck for running lights in studio. I did, (laughs) however, work at the Palladium. Okay. I worked at the Red Parrot as one of the two lighting operators, lighting techs, and then I began working day crew the year that the Palladium opened. Right. So I would. on day crew during the week and setups and whatever uh and then run lights at night wednesday through sunday at the red parrot and then i guess it was 87 when the red parrot eventually closed
1: yeah that was during gail sky king when she was playing there if i remember well
0: actually gail was playing at the tail end of the parrot even before she barely worked for the parrot. It was more when the, when the, uh, I forget the name of the family that bought it from Mer- Jimmy Murray, um, who took it over, but it changed names. And then Gail and Timmy Regisford were working there a lot. In any case, um, I'm going to say it was right around 87-ish. Yeah. And David Misket, who was the manager of the Palladium, asked if I would do lights at night. And I really didn't want to because the people who ran lights were my friends and I didn't want to be taking away anybody's job. But by the same token, it was a wonderful opportunity to work on lighting equipment that was not common in clubs. There was barrel lights, which had just been invented a few years earlier for Genesis. They were the first robotic instrument. Um, it was the only permanent installation in the world. They were only used on big rock and roll tours up to that point. So the fact that you could even come close to them as a lighting person, I mean, it was just an amazing opportunity. And the traditional lights, uh, the non-automated, uh, that was run off of another touring console, uh, uh, an Avalite QM500, which was a huge touring console. It almost looked very similar to a sound mixing board. Right. Like if you look at a big 48 channel mixer board,
1: which is right behind.
0: (laughs) This was typical rock and roll fare. I mean, there was probably you, you would be hard pressed to not name a big touring rock and roll group in the mid eighties that did not have a QM 500 as part of their equipment list. So that was, that was, you know, really, I guess kind of the draw to get into it and, and to work in that setting. Um, working on that really cool stuff, working with the video people. And, and so then I started, and then the Red Parrot closed. and I kept, but, uh,
1: but we played him just like studio. You got Steve Rebell in there.
0: Yeah. For a hot minute. Unfortunately he got ill after 87. By sure. the time I started working there at night, he already, uh, He already um, had started to have some side effects and started to suffer from uh, AIDS-related complications. And I believe he passed in 89. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, And then I stopped working at the Palladium. Uh, I stopped running lights. 90. And then I was just doing Verilite tech work. And then I stopped shortly after that and started doing special events for Robert Isabel. Do
1: you ever hear who
0: Robert Isabel was? No. He used to do flowers with Remy at Studio 54. So he very much got his shot through 54. Very close with Ian uh, and Steve. To this day, um, there's so much Robert influence in so many of the things that Ian does. uh, And Robert, unfortunately, God rest his soul, also passed. Um, But uh, he... Was really the king of events in Manhattan. We did amazing, amazing events at the Palladium. Um, we did the 200th anniversary of the New York Stock Exchange. We did the 150th anniversary of the New York Philharmonic. We did Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown's wedding. Uh, we did holiday decorations for the Clintons at the White House. We did all the vogue events, all the party in the garden, we, he did the, I was not part of, but Liz Garvin um, was production stage manager at Palladium and, and also worked with Robert. They did the Maria Shriver, Arnold Schwarzenegger wedding. Um, we did Jackie's memorial in, in uh, Grand Central Station, if you recall that. Yes. Uh, and, and, and that was certainly incredible exposure, incredible events. And Robert pushed the envelope and we actually were the largest renters of Verilites in the 90s in the Northeast because of these huge events that we used to do. Huge, huge, uh, it, 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 they boggled the mind.
1: It's incredible how important that light installation is at those type of events, the the level of what is spent to make that become a reality for those hours. You know, they're not even like they're not installs that are permanent. These are just for that day or that particular thing that you're doing, whatever it is.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And and the whole thing, um, you know, it comes up from nowhere and it goes away into trucks at the end of the day and it's gone. Uh, even though it may take a week to set up. I mean, Whitney Houston, for example, that was a week setup before the event, the event lasted a day, took us a day to take it down and drive away. And that's typically how it is with these big mammoth events. but you've got huge trucks and generators and trucks of gear and miles of tents and you know, it it, it, it it's, it's quite phenomenal when you look at some of these over the top high end special events and parties. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, and Robert was a real, a real master, real master at that.
1: Mm -hmm. I was very lucky to. (laughs) Are you lucky? It's like you stepped in, you stepped in what I call knee high poop every time, everywhere. you It's like everything that you're talking about, the clubs that you worked with, the people you were around and they're all, it's like the creme de la creme. Everyone.
0: uh, I I certainly feel very grateful that I have had such a wonderful life and I have encountered um, so many wonderful experiences and, and they keep repeating. I mean, when I started doing work in the field of architecture uh, and putting entertainment lighting into architecture, once again, I crossed paths with Ian because I had the opportunity to design some lighting in the Mondrian Hotel when he took that over in California. Uh, you know, and and just other little overlaps here and there, and and it's really you know again later on being involved with Matt Trinower and Altimeter Films and documentary, you know, again that 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 overlap uh, it is probably true that Studio 54 is without a doubt the most famous club in like the history.
1: Yeah. Of the well,
0: world at this point. I think
1: so, and I think it also changed everything that we know clubbing to be from that point forward.
0: I agree. I agree and and I am very grateful that I was in New York for the late 70s and the early 80s for that moment of time that I truly believe will be looked back at as a renaissance. Yes. There was so much art in every aspect. It wasn't just disco and dance music either. You know, it was the Lower East Side. It was the punk scene. It was the hip hop scene that was evolving. Rap was just beginning at that point. Um, You know, what's the first rap record that you remember? Mine would be Blondie.
1: Yeah, pretty much me too. Yeah. Even before Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, damn right. Yeah, as far as one that would cross into our world, yes, 100%. And,
0: and and there was such a renaissance. There was, you know, a whole other culture going down in the Lower East Side. There was art. There was fashion.
1: There was, you know. Hang on. Touring. Hang on. You got yeah. exp- You know, we know today they see New York City as gentrified. Back then, it was not gentrified in New York City. It was wild. That's what you have to paint the picture. Got a lot of people are listening and watching this and, and hearing you. And you know, it sounds like you are explaining Disney World because that's oh, kind of the scene seen was it away, Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I tell people all the time. Just taking the train was an event in Manhattan at night. Pretty much. Pretty you much. Know? Especially being a woman, and I got to give you a lot of credit. A woman. Doing tremendous things. Not like she's, you know, she's not a secretary. This is a woman that's designing things. She's in, she's hanging out with all the best people. She's around it all. You I, know,
0: was, it was a, I was I was very, very say, fortunate.
1: There was very a powerhouse fortunate. of women at that time. You had Judy Weinstein, Marsha. There was, there was Jane Britton at Columbia. There was, there was powerhouse women that were controlling the game. And she doesn't say too much about that, but she is a powerhouse. So, you know, oh, get the pen and paper out, people. Take notes. You know, she thank knows what she's talking I, about. She I, lived there
0: there were, there. there were most nights I remember, most crews I was on being, you know, the the only gal, being the only gal. In the room I
1: think right so. Time. Yeah. There are
0: lot, there are, thankfully, there are a lot more women in the entertainment business, there are a lot more women that are touring. Um, you know it, it's come about, but I mean, back then there were really no women, virtually, in clubs. You had uh, some that were in electrics, in theater companies, and in dance, and off, off Broadway, and 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 that's really where I met most of the women who were techs, was through the theater world, uh, as opposed to through clubland and the club world. Although I will say, I recently shared some history with a friend of mine, Ann Milatello, who is a Amazing lighting designer on her in her own right with an amazing resume, and unbeknownst to either of us, we shared a little bit of club history, being in kind of the same place in the same time next to each other in the seventies and didn't know each other and didn't know it, (laughs) which was kind of fun when you're you know retelling the story.
1: Yeah, because you know what happens, you'll tell the story and someone says, "Wait a minute, I know that story." dude everyone sees things differently everyone's peripheral vision who was around knows what went on but how you viewed it to pose how someone else viewed it it's still it's still the same story but told differently it's funny you get it i could see that yeah you get it you hear i've heard it from so many different people people who experienced certain things over the years or they were around certain people it's like i knew those people but i heard it Oh, sorry. Differently. It's the same story from a different viewpoints. Amazing.
0: Well, and, you know, I think that this is true for many of the venues that we would go to separately or together. I mean, take Paradise Garage, for example. Yes. If you were into the dancing part, you probably spent more time in the dance floor area. If you're into the social part, you probably spent more time in the lounge. If you were of the music industry insider group, you probably spent most time up in the VIP room that was next to Larry's booth upstairs. So there was just a whole different, ah, there I am, young Marsha. There
1: she is, young lady she was.
0: And and I think that uh, each person could have gone to the same club at the same night and walked away with a different uh, different perspective at the end of the night. Absolutely, absolutely. But hopefully it was our job as people who are creating the party, that we're giving you a cohesive message. The DJ through the music, the selections, the momentum and the energy that the DJ has chosen to put it together in whatever order it is that makes that night different from all other nights. And the lighting person who has chosen to accentuate the music into a visual platform so that literally the best lights are that you see are when you're dancing with your eyes closed.
1: <laughs> yes, very true. Very true. Some people have always remember about, say, for example, garage's dance floors, this flickering lights. They always flicker. There's a lot of flickering going on, you know, where Saint had that more like you're in a trip. Like you said, tripping on the moon, that feeling. It's a, it's a different way, different musically, spiritually speaking. I'm going to have you explain a little bit better musically and how things in those days work as far as the difference in clubs and how, say, a place like Garage or Studio or later on the Flamingo's because those are clubs that were at the same time going on or where you worked at New York, New York. What was the music policies with the way things rolled in those days? We know disco, we know caps on the dance music, but.
0: Yeah. And, and I don't know of any quote policy that was put forth to the DJ as far as what they could or couldn't play. I think I would rather assume The DJ that was picked was picked to play because of their style like Raul Rodriguez I would work with him at New York New York I would work at Casey Jones at New York New York each had different styles both played music for that club which was a more commercial club it had a more generic bridge and tunnel maybe a little older group on the weekends because it was a dinner restaurant upstairs it was a little supper club upstairs um you played more for that clientele regimes you had a little more of a hoity-toity less wild and crazy dancy uh club where you had um you know barnum it was kind of like all bets are off you had trapeze artists and and it was a lot more what we call bridge and tunnel you know in the jersey crowd that would come in and a lot more of the overflow at barnum and xenon for the people who couldn't get into 54 for whatever reason Because 54, you know, the biggest attraction of Studio 54, I think, was whether or not you could make it past Mark Benegy and the ropes. Right.
1: That was a big, big attraction. Am I going to get in it tonight?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the overflow or the frustrated would then go further south and hit Barnum or Xenon. Now, the types of music that were played, I think, also changed. From day to day and dj to dj and again some you had more commercial i when i listened back to tapes from richie Kazor, i found his musical selections to be much more commercial
1: yes agreed than,
0: than roy's selections for example um richie would tend to repeat records through the course of the night they were hits the dance floor was full he was doing his job he was keeping everyone happy but he was catering to a crowd that liked that, as opposed to Roy, who was catering more to a gay crowd on Thursdays and Sundays, who was playing and was resident at Ice Palace, both on Fire Island and the new Ice Palace uh, that was built in 77, Ice Palace 57, just up the street. And so there, you had a little more leeway. You still were going for a more commercial audience in the city than you would at, say, Flamingo or The Saint or Fire Island. Respect. But it was a little bit of a different style. It had maybe more of a musical trip, more of a beginning, middle, and an end to the evening rather than a more frequent rotation of the hits, which other DJs would do. Both highly successful, both catering to the audience that they were playing to.
1: Yes. And very different and very, but very same away
0: now haraz for example was also had one foot in rock and roll so you could get away with playing the cure at haraz that you maybe couldn't get away with playing that at studio or or at the saint or at the garage you know now and larry could get away with playing anything because he did and and you know and of course Garage, you catered to a wonderful house and RB sound, and there was Buttermilk Bottoms. you remember T Scott? Were you
1: yes, Tyrone Scott, sure, no T Scott, great guy,
0: yeah, wonderful man. What a Better days,
1: man. yes.
0: Better days, yep. And then Buttermilk Bottoms was Larry. Did Larry Patterson play a Buttermilk?
1: Yes, Larry Patterson played. Yes,
0: you know, and 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 again, I think that even within that R and B genre you also had the more commercial venues like the buttermilk bottoms yep even though it was more on the private scale it was still a little more commercial than paradise garage was
1: oh big time <laughs> yeah big time yeah big and, time
0: and and i think that that is is what would at least have the dj make their selection Robbie and i worked at the red parrot a lot and again that was really unique because when jimmy mary opened the red parrot he also had a 40s swing style orchestra the red parrot orchestra joe kane and the red parrot orchestra and they were resident and he used to they used to do shows every night and they would break up the disco with a swing band set with a live orchestra so that was kind of weird but you add One group of people who came for the disco, one group of people who came for the swing music, 40s music, and another group of people that danced to anything and they didn't care.
1: Right. And it was fabulous
0: because you had this wonderful mishmash that, you know, maybe Robbie could get away with playing certain things at the Red Parrot that he never could have gotten away with playing at the same because of that little extra nuance that gave that club its... Little different hook, different angle.
1: Right, right. I think you said when you mentioned Timmy and Git. I remember that. I think Red Parrot later became 4D. If I remember correctly. Yes,
0: I think that's the name. 4 well, The Juliano's were the family that bought yes. it. It was 4D. the
1: Juliano's. Because I saw, and it's funny. I I saw I saw Gail Sky King a few years ago at an event. I couldn't believe I saw her. Another one, another what great lady.
0: What a great woman and immensely talented!
1: Oh and yeah, great I team.
0: really enjoyed working with her.
1: I can see that she's got. She had a lot. She was hot at that time. She was on the way.
0: Oh, indeed, and and she was very big into production and studios. Mm-hmm. So. so when we were talking about getting into the eighties, you already had. Um, I think she used to come and hook an effectron into the booth at the Parrot. And, and a digitizer and you know we actually had a proper live sound stage with monitor mixer and, and effects and a front of house mixing and that was a very sophisticated sound and lighting system at the Parrot.
1: yeah i could see that because you had an orchestra too you had to deal with so you had to have mixing for an orchestra and also a setup no, for the sound yeah. system
0: and the sound stage was built as a proper sound stage as opposed to when We'd have a band at the Palladium. We'd build the stage, we'd run the sound, we'd put everything in, and then it would all go away at the end. The Red Parrot had all of the uh, uh, the skeleton built into the stage. So if you had an amp and you were plugging it in, your box was already in the stage floor. Boom, you plug it in. That was it. Bada bing, bada bang. It was, you know, really, really, yeah, right but see, see this is the
1: thing built. Look, this is the thing that. The club goer does no idea what's going on. What it takes a night? They have no idea.
0: True. I'm sure people didn't realize also that the Red Parrot was designed, that the lighting was designed by a very famous Broadway lighting designer, a guy by the name of Ken Billington.
1: They wouldn't have known that.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, just as studio was used, also very famous Broadway lighting designers, Jules yep. Fisher and Fisher Morantz, Paul Morantz, um, you know, and, and Palladium as well. They, they also were the lighting designers of the Palladium. Um, not everyone did that. That's yeah. true. Not everyone did that. Uh, in fact, I think that Jimmy Murray and Stephen Ian were probably the only ones I'm aware of that used, like, top name Broadway theater designers in their club builds.
1: That's true. Because at that time, when they went in to go set up studio, nobody in the light business would work with them. They had to go that direction, I think. They had to go outside the box because the discos, the other discos were holding back. And, you know, pretty much strong arming. The other owners were strong arming not to have them open because I think they realized that when they were going to open up studio, that was going to change the game big time.
0: Well, uh, the smartest thing that Ian and Steve did when they took over a studio was because it was a studio, literally, it was a television studio, it was a proper theater. The smartest thing they did were bring in theatrical minds to utilize the skeleton and utilize the building that was there, I mean, to bring in all those drops and all the things that were flying in and out you didn't have to add an infrastructure same thing with palladium i mean as you, as you recall when you went in the palladium early on opening we had a disco queen's disco which was the house that was sitting in the middle of the dance floor and there were five different sets of drops so when you came in you only saw half of the dance floor anyways it was an 80 foot long dance floor and the furthest downstage drop was like at 40 foot. And one by one, we would reveal and go back, back, back until we got to the brick wall at the end.
1: To look at full, because otherwise, if you open up that room and it's empty, it looks cavernous.
0: But that was all done in the bones of the building that was there, which was built as an old theater. And uh, the moving, the flying trusses that were over the dance floor that had the moving lights on them, Those were added after the fact, but in the same fashion as everything that was in the old theater setup. So um, it, it was the right thing to do to utilize it as a theater space. It was also new and unique and certainly one of the huge wow factors that made studio what it was. And at the time it was the only club that had a moon that's came into the, from nowhere and a spoon that fed it and went back and forth. And then they went away and then the sun came down and, you know, I mean, it's the only place that did that.
1: You know, it's, I went to, you know, you mentioned about the Brooklyn museum. You guys did the, the, uh, the, the, um, when they opened up the exhibit for studio, were you there? Right.
0: Uh, the Studio 54 Night Magic. Yes, I loaned the museum a number of artifacts that they used on display, and I was asked to produce the three soundtracks for the three different rooms, and I yanked Robbie into the project with me, and the two of us worked together to produce the soundtrack uh, that were used in the three various rooms. You said you saw the music, the exhibit? Yeah, I
1: went to see it. Yeah, it was excellent.
0: the first room was the 77, 78 room, and that was uh, featured excerpts from Wayne Scott, who was one of the first DJs hired at 54. And then the second room featured the two records, the one that Roy had done, A Night at 54, and then the one that uh, Richie Kazor had mixed also. Yep. Uh, and those were featured tracks. And the final room uh, used a featured track from uh, Roy' performance that actually the master reel-to-reel is also on loan to the museum and is part of that display.
1: Yeah, I saw you put, you gave, you, you actually loaned the uh, headphone, headphone of voice. Yep.
0: I saw. Yeah, I worked with uh, the curator, Matthew Yokobowski, And uh, he, I sent him a whole bunch of memorabilia and photographs and whatnot, and he picked what he wanted and he wanted the headphone and he wanted the BPM. Book and the uh, two reels and uh, one other thing, but we couldn't quite coordinate that in time. Uh, and it, it was what a delight to work with them. The exhibit now is—I don't know if the Toronto Art Museum no, they- has opened or not, but it's set up and it's ready to go in Toronto.
1: I have that book. Let me see. We got the book. Oh
0: yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah, I was able. You were able to get me that last moment with Roy and the the book, the Bible book. Um. But one thing I, re- I saw in there about the spoon, when you mentioned now the spoon and the... <laughs> the moon and the spoon. Yes. There's a picture of Dolly Parton I saw. And I think it must have came from a show or something. And I was wondering if they got that idea off of some movie or something um, before it went into studio.
0: Do you know about that? Well, all I know is that the gentleman who designed the set piece, Richie Williamson, he would know where the idea came from. And I certainly could ask him at some point. Because I saw but it's so small.
1: It was so small to the start. I'm wondering, I'm going.
0: I have no idea. Richie Williamson was uh, designed many of the set pieces. uh, And he is most notoriously famous for the moon and the spoon. And um, wonderful man. A wonderful man, uh, but but I could certainly ask him and ask how that scene. I'm came
1: curious across. because I saw a picture of Dolly Parton sitting, and she's sitting on looks like the same getup that they well, used. Unless she
0: was sitting in it because the piece. Yeah, of sitting
1: it, in it. Yeah, sitting, sitting in it. it. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's before studio, or they got the idea, or that was taken in studio, because it looked like it was early '70s. Yeah, who knows? I figured well, I just. Well, I
0: certainly can ask Richie where he got the idea from to do it. That's incredible. A, you remember Lenny. Everyone. And then I'll email you the answer and you can
1: uh, tell I'll your audience a later. You know, I'll do, I'm going run a special. Everybody who knows who <laughs> came up with it first, studio or Dolly Parton, we'll have to find out later. We'll We'll get the answer to that.
0: We'll ask the artist, he would know.
1: I'm going to ask you now, because waiting for Robbie to come on, because I think he's still trying to get home. Um, people are intrigued with The Saint as well. And wow. I know you don't. Can you explain the build out for that? The steel, elevated dance floor, all that being that you went there, worked, hung out, the whole deal.
0: Well, St. was originally built as a theater, and it was probably most famously known in the 60s as the Fillmore East, right? and promoted by Bill Graham. And when Bruce Mailman took over the building, the original entry into the theater remained the same. Um, What would have been... The orchestra level, the main mm-hmm. seating, um, that it all was all removed. All seating was removed. The shell of the building remained. The balcony remained. Right. The dressing rooms remained, and they were converted into the locker rooms. The Saint. Let me let me preface for members of your audience that don't know, the Saint was built in and opened in September of 1980, and it was a private membership only men's club I'm not sure the exact numbers I think there was something like 1800, 2,000 people invited first year as charter members of that I think there were less than 40 that were women. I was one of those women who was a chart a charter member mm-hmm. uh, they did not discriminate against women but this was a club that was built by gay men for gay men. So they really weren't peppering the membership rosters with anyone and everyone. They kept it quite exclusive to a predominantly Fire Island. And heretofore, the private men's club, the most notorious, of course, uh, was Flamingo, followed rapidly by 12 West, which Mm was a little more, you know, across the board, whereas Flamingo was a little tighter membership club run by Michael Fesco. Any case, um, so they pretty much gutted the building for any and all of the main level seats, any mezzanine level seats. Uh, the fly rail system was there; you could see the proscenium arch, anything that was upstage or 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 above you know what would have been like going backstage from the proscenium arch uh that is not a picture of the proscenium arch that is a picture standing up looking at the dome from the main level um and you're looking up at the outside of the dome which was built as a geodesic dome so if in your mind you could think that you're walking in on the first floor and the dance floor was on the second floor and it was kind of floating on this hemisphere that was raised in the center of this cavernous theater where there were you know, some banquets and things that were built for sitting, but no theater seats as you would know them. Right. Um, and and refreshments were served in what was the backstage area. Uh, the Old fly rail stuff was still there, but it wasn't used as anything. As I say, the proscenium arch was there. Um, And this geodesic dome, uh, it was interestingly built the material in that if you were outside of the dome, like up in the balcony, or in the photograph that you showed, it was a perforated steel so you could see into the dome. However, if you were in the dome, it acted as a reflective property so that the lighting show, which was inside the dome, Use the surface of the dome to reflect off of, and in the center of the circle was a hydraulic. The first year it used to go up and down. This ring, this huge hydraulic uh, tower, with like a double ring of lights, and in the center of it was the star machine that was on a pedestal
1: that would. Rotate. I think I have something close. Let me show the dance floor okay. with, the, with the with the projector. Hang on, let me find it. Let's okay it's it's what i can find
0: <laughs> okay i'm not really seeing a good picture its it's a little dark and grainy it looks like we've got the heads people's heads on the bottom of the picture and on the right would be that lighting tower that i'm speaking about yep and there's a little horizontal bar that's at the top of the tower if you want to put your cursor on it that's the star machine nope go down go down go down a little down a little more, down a little more. Now too ah too far. Go to the right. Little more, little more, little more. Now up just a wee bit. That's the star machine. See that bar of white light that's above you? That's where the star machine sat on top of the platform. And if you go down from where your cursor is, you can see the ring, and it almost looks like the inside of an umbrella at the bottom of the lift of the mm-hmm. tower. If you go down with your cursor. Down. Keep going down, 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 Oh, and if you look there, you can see it almost looks like the inside of an umbrella. Yep. Going off to the left and right. And then around as it goes off to the left and right at the top of that angle is the circle of with lighting, various rows of lighting that went around mm-hmm. the complete perimeter. And as I said, the first year that used to travel up and down. So you would start the night on the floor. And as the dance floor filled up, it would slowly raise. And then they mirrored around the tower, and then it never moved after that.
1: Because people always wondered who's, you know, we saw the Saint, some of us saw the Saint documentary that, you know, Robbie's in and stuff. But no one ever discussed who came up with this idea of doing this dome, this whole, who's, do you know who's behind that? Like who's, well,
0: I can tell you that the designers were Charles Terrell and Mark Ackerman. A guy by the name of Greg Ackerman out of Delaware built the star machine and was involved in the installation of all of the lighting. Um, Peter Spar designed the sound system, which, by the way, Richard Long was also offered the job, and he said that it was impossible to design a sound system because they didn't want the speakers shown. Right. Because, and as you... No, for if you were in the Saint, the only thing that you saw of a sound system visible were the tweeters. And they were off of the, they were off of the uh, the center tower. And that was it. There were no speakers that were visible. Peter had mounted them on the exterior of the dome. And part of the banquettes were the the low end it was built into the banquettes that was around the perimeter of the dome.
1: Oh, okay. And
0: it was the sweetest sound system that existed anywhere it was one of the most acoustically perfect sound systems i have ever heard in my entire life
1: really wow
0: okay there was a sweet spot in the saint that you could play the from the most sweetest classical to the hardest dance but it was a very sweet sound system and peter was very brilliant and very talented uh, sound engineer and sound designer.
1: Why did I think that was Barry Letter and Graybar? I thought Graybar had because something.
0: Peter Spar worked with Barry Letter at Graybar many years prior. But this sound system was by a company called Entertech. Right. I remember Peter you mentioned Right. Entertech was on Peter Spar, and that was his office that was over on Washington Street. Uh-huh. Steve Zaniel, Steve Daniel, who also did Lights, uh was one of the alternate lighting guys at the St. Um, in ensuing in, in years, you know, second season on, he, uh, he and I both worked for Peter at Entertech. So we would go in and do maintenance on the sound system
1: if we needed to. So you, you also you also worked on sound also, the audio part too. Good girl, look at you. Get your toy, get your toolbox out and your SPL meter and check everything out.
0: We worked on probably one of the <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm embarrassed or not, but you No, know, don't and, be
1: embarrassed. Of, Tell
0: us. One of the bigger jobs that Peter had, commercial jobs, was um was uh and he he was a brilliant, brilliant sound designer, really brilliant. Um, and he was, one of his clients was when Trump built Trump Tower. And if you go in Trump Tower, you can see very, very long. It, it, they're very hard to find because they were specifically built and designed to be camouflaged into that metallic finish that is ubiquitous throughout Trump Tower.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but by hand, the sound system that is in Trump Tower. I am one of two people who built <laughs> <laughs> you, you are have, guilty. And I have a big scar on my leg to prove it. <laughs> you are guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. It's a sweet sound system. Yeah.
1: Much different than Garage. That I can say. But, Way- now,
0: Peter was involved with the sound system at 12 West, which was Barry Letterer and Graybar. Right. And also worked for a time with Richard Long, but Richard had gone off and done his own thing. Right. And Joe Zaymore, who I had mentioned about the lighting design with Paradise Garage, before all of that, when you go back to his beginning, he worked with Richard Long in sound, which again brings that connection around to how everybody is interconnected.
1: Love it. Robbie's back. He's he's gonna bring. Robbie's got the dog. Bring the dog in. Thank God, Robbie's okay. And Marsha has been educating us, Robbie Leslie, like no other. She is incredible. Oh, that guy, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody yeah, Robbie too. Leslie. The best laid plans of mice
2: and men, you know, often go awry. That's that's the deal.
0: You know, not for nothing. This is like the best reason you could have come up with to be a roving reporter for the first hour. I personally <laughs> loved it.
2: <laughs> I, I I listened to the whole thing from the car driving up, so it's been it's been great.
1: We got to pick you up now, Robbie. Where 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 you start? Because we heard your Fire Island Sandpiper, and you got to take us now. You know, into your world because Marshall well, really broke it down. I'll, go ahead before I get sidetracked
2: or anything, because Marsha mentioned something in the co- when I was driving, and that was like uh, on-the-job training. And uh, that what popped into my head immediately was Bobby Vidriti. Now that little bit of a backstory is necessary. Um, when I worked at the Sandpiper, of course it's a seasonal club. <clears throat> and uh, so when they closed at the end of October, I came back to Florida, which is where I would normally winter. And uh, I got a job at the Marlin Beach Hotel, which is uh, the poop deck. And I got the job as a, pretty much to do sort of the sandpiper, the off nights, but it was tea dances, the off tea dances. And then I would work uh, the weekend nights with Bobby. I would do the lights. So I was um, an erstwhile light uh, operator back in the day. And, um, is it so work? I would work with Bobby. I worked with Bobby, uh, like from first song to last and talk about, you know, being an apprentice and, and learning just, uh, everything you need to know about how to entertain a dance floor, how to maintain energy, how to, how to break a room, how to, um, peak a room, um, and just all the techniques of mixing and the kinds of mixes that are appropriate for certain, certain types of builds, um. So, yeah, credit to Bobby, because uh, truly, I learned more from him initially, you know, as far as not only what to do, but what not to do <laughs> in the business. Um, and so that's
1: that's been like solid gold for me. So here's the question now. Yes. Uh, but, so Bobby goes, I know Bobby's story. He gets a job offered at Trocadero from Florida. Right. Uh, yes, I believe he
2: went from Florida straight over, yes, to, to the West Coast.
1: Where was – so Bobby was playing – did you meet Bobby in New York pre to Florida or you met him first in Florida?
2: No, I met Bobby in Florida. In fact, he worked at a club I was – when I was still waiting tables before I got into the booth. I was working at a club called Tangerine, which was a very, like, progressive ahead of its time. It was, again, a restaurant in the evenings and then turned into a disco at night. And he was uh, – I think he may have been the opening night DJ actually there – but he was one of the residents and uh, that was owned by John Costelli, who later opened or actually quite soon after opened uh, the Copa, which is a legend down in South Florida right. uh, and and also Far uh, Island for a short time. Uh, so Bobby, as I met in Florida and uh, knew him socially, but not very well. But then once I got into the booth, you know, we were best friends
1: and then from there so now you learn everything from lighting and now you keep now you keep going go ahead right
2: but you know it's it's a um, i'm really grateful that i learned about lighting before i before i really mastered my knowledge of mixing and music because the so the two are so at least in a good club they're so intertwined they're so interdependent i mean i've done guests i've, I've never worked a residency with, with someone like this, but I've done guest spots in other cities where the light man is, you know, like on his phone half the time and everything's on automatic or what have you, barely paying attention to what you're doing, um, which is so so wrong, so inappropriate, especially for a guest DJ, which is you're supposed to highlight, if not as opposed to just let it go. But um, uh, that, I think I learned a lot about energy and, and drama. And that served me very well when I moved into New York City, because the big clubs, that's what it was all about. Uh, like starting, starting a trip, getting people excited. It was like you know, a great lovemaking uh, fest. Uh, and you know, peaking them, reaching an orgasm, so to speak, musically speaking. Uh, and then, and then a, a, an afterglow that would follow. And of course the New York clubs were famous for their morning music. Um, And that is an acquired, it's an acquired taste, but it's also an acquired talent for a DJ to be able to play, play that. Well, Um, it's all across the board, everything from like really dirty and not nasty music to the most beautiful heartbreaking songs, you know, ever recorded. And that's always for the, for the hardcore dancers that really like to spend the whole night at a club. That was like the dessert or that was like, you know, the icing on the cake to uh, to have that special set of the night. You know, the last couple hours when the music was very personal, the DJ really got to shine, got to uh, express himself a lot more than your generic peak records, you know, the the top 40 stuff. Uh, So working those clubs where I was doing 10 hours, 14 hours. sets.
1: Wait a minute yeah oh, let oh. people know this let people know this hold on the two right. hour set the hour and a half set is not something we did back then Absolutely. oh
2: my god that would be such a slap in the face to, to you know to say well we'd like you to book you to play a job it's only it's like two hours long you know you really don't get to do or express anything uh but you know it was a very specific sequence of events uh by that I mean the clubs I got booked at that taught me uh, and made me made me capable physically capable of playing these marathon sets. And the, the longest, my record was 20 hours and that was a, a white party at the same and not a single uh, repeated song in 20 hours. Um, but working at 12 West, which was pretty much a six to eight hour gig because they had skylights and so the, the light would come in at dawn and people wouldn't dance much beyond say an hour or two beyond sunrise Um, and uh, some of the fire island clubs that went after hours. But then the Saint, of course, was the great, you know, the great uh, granddaddy of the mall, as far as long sets. Oh Yeah. Yeah. Then they would close at noon. They would close at
1: three in the afternoon, you know, what time uh, time you wanted to finish it basically. Yes. Yes. And it was still busy. They would not shut it until you were done.
2: That's correct. That's correct it was a great deal of respect and a great deal of cooperation between management and the DJ and and light person. Uh, It's exactly as you described. It was about, have you finished? Have you, have you uh, musically expressed yourself? And is the party complete? Uh, And so the management would come up periodically and, you know, sort of take tabs on how you were doing. and. Hey,
1: Hey, how you doing, babe? Everything okay? They would would say, okay, you good? Yes, yes, right. Exactly.
0: And and And, uh let me me just interject also as people who did plan their evenings to go out to the Saint, once the Saint really did do real extended sets, it took that I'm gonna go to Flamingo and arrive at two or three to a new level where you took your disco nap and you didn't wake up till four in the morning. That's right, and showered and got ready in the morning, right? Because And 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 the DJs, I know Roy would do this and we would talk about it. I'm sure the same with you and everyone else. You had a, a crowd that was your earlier crowd and then a crowd that was your later crowd that went into the morning music or, as we would fondly say, as soon as a good one would come on and say, now we're going to church. <laughs> and then we'd really start some good R&B come on and tambourines right. would come out. Woo!
2: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was very much also uh, at that hour, very much more like a, a family
0: hour. Let me ask uh, you. There definitely, was a shift in the the attendance. You had the early crowd and the later crowd. Yes. Well, then you had some that came for the first record and stayed till the end.
2: <laughs> I used to particularly like the people that because we used to play classical music, which was wonderful. Uh, the first hour of the night on the weekends and. Uh, to hear like a, you know, like like a symphony by Beethoven or Rachmaninoff or what have you uh, on that sound system with that light show and the stars moving. And it was it was like, you know, it was spiritual and uh, some people would come pretty much just for that and maybe, you know, a couple hours after and, and they'd be happy.
0: It really did set the tone very, very nicely in a very unique way. When I used to tell people that was classical the first hour, they were like, is this a disco? Yeah, right, exactly.
1: It gets going after a while.
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right.
1: But one of the signature records I remember coming from you or that particular club, the same, was Ab is Lay All Your Love on Me. That was like kind of, and I explained this to these new, the newer DJs that when sets were laid out, it wasn't just about music, the words and how words spoke. One record after another would tell the story, how important that was. Absolutely. You know, that was like a lost art, you know, in a sense. And
2: I think it should, we should mention right now, uh, and Marsha will corroborate this, uh, Roy was even was probably the most involved in lyrics and uh of any DJ I've ever met. And if if a if a record, no matter how popular it was, was negative or had something violent or uh you know just disturbing in the lyrics, he just wouldn't play it. It was just off the right. off the chart, you know, off the menu.
0: You're absolutely right. And he also oftentimes I hear it in his tapes where the songs would almost ask question. The next one would answer it. Or we all, we always used to say we could tell what mood he was in by what songs he was playing because he really wore his heart on his sleeve. And the yeah. lyrics of the song told you, what, what they told you everything you needed to know. It mm-hmm. told the story, as you said. There was definitely a story.
2: Right. And beyond the lyrics, I think the tone of the song, just, just the, you know, the sonic tones, uh, was it very, was it more hard edge? Was it more electronic? Was it more, you know, violins and, and, you know, singing ladies in the background, Uh, you could communicate a great amount of emotion just by tone uh, as well as by lyrics, but it was all balanced out. That was a wonderful thing. I mean, how, uh, how grateful I am that I got to play these mega clubs when they were the standard of the business, of the industry, and Marcia got to do do the lighting uh, because nothing really exists, I don't think, except for one-night installations uh, that could match it. But I mean, to think that this went on every weekend. Right. and a year. And on weeknights, even. <laughs> yeah, was, for
0: years, for special. years
1: sure for sure We it was spoiled god were we spoiled to have all this going on
0: and we actually had words in the songs and in the music that Mm -hmm. you could follow and sing to if you wanted to something else that i don't hear so much if i go out in today's world which i don't do very often i'm old but
1: oh masha you're just weathered it's okay (laughs)
0: <laughs> He's the we're seasoned. Wait, wait, wait!
1: And she can still cut a rug, and we're, and give us some lighting, and she'll kick our ass right away. Step aside. <laughs> Watch me do this. <laughs> right. Exactly. Watch me now. Exactly. So, but Robbie, did you have to when you know you were playing Far Island stuff, and you know Michael Fesco was one of the hottest club owners in a sense, and promoters. Yeah. Well, he owned Flamingo. Yeah. Flamingo, and he had you know 12 Wests. You had. I understand Bruce Mailman opens up Saint. Did they come to you or you, was it like, we want you to come and play? How did that happen? What was the, you know, the back end? Sure.
2: Well, I'll tell you. Um, it's kind of interesting the way the way it actually played out. Uh, when word started getting around, I'll, I'll step back a few months, that a new club was opening uh, in the Lower East Side and that it was supposed to blow everything you know, out of the water. Kingdom Come. Yeah. The hike was was so powerful. Everyone was like so fascinated. And, you know, you give them a little teaser and they, they want more and more. Uh, and then when the, when the opening date finally arrives, which was September 20, I believe, of 1980. God, so. uh, the The other clubs, I mean, it didn't take probably a month. Didn't even take a month before this, like, mass migration over to The Saint. Uh, Everybody just wanted this to be a member and to go there and dance because it was just so amazing. Um, And, you know, I I credit all the clubs. Flamingo was an amazing club. 12 West is still my favorite club and my favorite gig to this day. Uh, But, you know, that was the shiny new thing in 1980, The Saint, and all its amazing technology. So they had spoken to Alan Dodd previously Mm -hmm. uh, about being the opening DJ and being a resident at the St. So he, who was a resident at 12 West, he left of his own accord, uh, 12 West. And that was about the same timing that I had moved into uh, Manhattan and was, was looking for a permanent job and had given myself six months to either... Support myself as a DJ, or think of something else to do. So uh, I did. I did an audition at Twelve West, but it wasn't. It was because Alan Dodd had had made a vacancy uh, because there were only two resident gigs available. Uh, that opened the door for me to to be hired at Twelve West, and uh, then, of course,
1: the same but wait, opened. But tell people how hot Twelve West was. Come on. Oh. That was- we, yeah, it's, it's funny because last
2: night uh, was the 41st anniversary of my first party that I did there. And it was it was one of those make or break nights. I, I'd been working there a couple of months and uh, had established myself. But this was like a real party. So this was like packed to the rafters. And the club was of an age, I guess by then it was almost five years old, that the banquettes that rose up from the dance floor were all made of wood, and of course, being hollow, they were very resonant. Well, uh, after five years, they got a little give to them. They got a little, yeah. a little movement. So with, it, they get huh? so with this place, like, totally full, and everyone, like, not only on the dance floor, like, shaking it, but up on the banquettes, you know, like, going, going to the music, uh, they started skipping the records. And this is early on, this is probably about, you know, let's say one in the morning. And I knew that if this continued, because you know, a, a record skip is bad enough. A record skip in a gay club is a cardinal sin. <laughs> they, right. they never live <laughs> down.
0: Yeah. Oh.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, uh, so Tony Martino, one of the co-owners of the club, he calls up Peter Spar, who is the, you know, the, the genius behind Grey Bar, and he said, "Get your ass down here immediately, and if you don't, you know, it's all over." For you and for us and he was there probably in 15 minutes and he brought these big foam pads so one by one we transferred the turntables up onto these these like isolating pads uh and i played the rest of the night and that saved me truly because as it was getting busier and busier the records were more frequently skipping and if they weren't skipping you could hear them kind of vibrate the needles vibrating in the grooves ready to ready to jump out uh so yeah, 12 us was just a magical place. And, and uh, I wrote about it on Facebook uh, a few days ago. It was just that it was kind of an empty canvas when you went in and what you did with the music and what the light man did with the lights uh, was starting from scratch and starting totally fresh. And the crowd was just such a devoted uh, group that loved to dance. They were in it for the whole night. It wasn't just a passing thing. Oh, let's go over you know, for an hour or what have you. Let's just hang out for a while. This was like a, a you know, a commitment uh, for the night. And they would all stay right through But they loved all the kinds of music, whether it was slow stuff, high energy, electronic. Um, and they adored their DJs. They were very loyal.
1: Let me ask you this question, Robbie. You know, the gay DJs in, in 12 West and Saint and Flamingos, okay? We always said, played like glass. In other words, the mixing was seamless. And I've said this many times, where garage was more about bam, excitement, boom, you know, like thunder and lightning coming, Lolita Holloway screaming.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. How how where did this style of mixing for you, this long overlay with this seamlessness really take for you? Um
2: I think I think the what really, uh, where I really picked it up was from Bobby and from Alan Dodd. Those are the two principles that uh, that I I really wanted to use as kind of my template. That I that I admired. I liked their style. I wanted to uh, copy it and then put my own you know fingerprints on it. Um, but uh, you know, of course, you can't you really can't compare anybody to to Larry because it is Larry's uh, garage. It, wasn't anyone else's garage? No, His style was such that um, uh, the the jarring, you know, changes in tempo. It was kind of like the loft, where you know he could play, David could play anything really, and let the record run out. It was more about content. It was a hundred percent content over flow. And uh, you know, there are two schools that thought about that. Um, you know, looking back upon it, uh, the delivery is is secondary to the, to the entire performance. Like, is it is it, uh, you know, what kind of entertainment are you providing? And, and Larry just knocked it out of the park. I mean, his, his sets are legendary. Mm-hmm. And critically, well, cheating, yeah, uh, you can look at them and tear them to pieces um, on, a, on a technical aspect, but nobody can, can deny that people uh, had life-changing, you know, experiences there on that dance floor. And will never forget it for the rest of their lives. Uh, I, uh, you know, I had a different aesthetic and for me, like subtlety was, was kind of my game. And uh, if I could pull off, if I could pull off a blend that you could barely hear, and you barely noticed that, that another song had started to me, that was like the ultimate rush. and you'd get uh you know, you wouldn't get a cue until you actually heard a lyric or, or some kind of sonic cue that, that the next record had started. And, uh, I apologize for my phone (laughs) ringing in the background. Uh, but yes, um, you know, DJ style is, is, is what that's a stock and trade. You know, if it, if it appeals to the crowd, you're popular. If it, you know, if it doesn't, it sets their teeth on edge, then of course, uh, you're, you need to get in another business or change your, change your,
1: leave now, leave quick. Yeah,
2: that's right.
1: Here's here's something I always remember about hearing about Jim Burgess's final gig was mm-hmm. at Saint. We you you, were yes. that you worked that night, right? No, I didn't work. I was there dancing that night. Yes, I was
2: you know on the dance floor. Yes. Yes. Me
1: too.
2: Right, right. And uh of course, uh, John Siglia was there and he he tells a very vivid, very specific story on how it all played out. Um I of course was experienced it experiencing it from the dance floor, but, uh, when he played his last, what turned out to be his last song, the club was absolutely full to capacity and it wasn't very late. I don't really remember what time it could have been six in the morning or something, which the club would have been packed at, you know, on a Saturday night at 6 AM. Uh, when he, when he, he had played that six. song, there he, was he was is. Right. Uh, totally right. and that's Eric Erickson with him. Yeah. Right. Yep. So uh, when he, um, when he played that song and and physically left the booth, walked out of the booth, uh, I told my friend, Michael, who I was dancing with, I said, I I think we really need to get out of here. Cause I was expecting like a riot or something really ugly to to transpire because here you have like hundreds or maybe thousands of people, uh, totally revved up and ready for the party of the century because this is Jim Burgess retiring. And, uh, and he, you know, kind of walks out on the people. And, and that, tired. <laughs> Yeah. That was perceived by some as a total slap in the face uh, that, you know, you have a dance floor and you, you're turning your back on them, you know, and then, and, but, but taking it from his perspective, he said, I had already played what I've already said musically, what I want to say, and I'm finished and everything after this would be anticlimactic. So, I mean, I can appreciate both sides of the story, but, as a DJ, that flies in the face of my own ethics and and values. And if there's a dance floor and they're, you know, and they're ready for more, it's wait, I'm a block. You're not going home. That's right. That's right. Many nights. <laughs> it turns out I get home in the afternoons instead of, <laughs> instead right. of the morning. You thought you yeah. get home six. You didn't get home till two right. in the afternoon, right? Oh, yeah. Easily. Sure. Sure. I'm glad I was in my 20s back then. You know, I certainly it would kill me now to do
0: it. Yeah. And I remember as Burgess left the booth and walked out and you have, what, 1,200 queens on the dance floor with their mouths hanging open and all of us by or near or in the DJ booth with this, what's going on. And panic before panic completely ensued, a couple of us ran up to Mark Ackerman's loft because he had an apartment on the third floor above the offices at of the Saint. We grabbed every record we could lay our hands on and Sharon White started spinning, picking up. And then we went to Sharon's apartment and grabbed all of her records and brought them into the booth. And she finished the night, finished the party. Everybody had a wonderful time. And that was unofficially her first night performing at the Saint.
2: Yes.
1: Oh, yeah. one, one, so basically the swan leaving and here's the new, I would say, I guess. Yeah, But I mean, it was
0: literally we were standing there looking at each other saying, did he just leave? And is he coming back? What happened? Right. Ultra dramatic things, which he is certainly known to do musically. And we half expected him to like do a pirouette at the bottom of the stairs and come back and do something fabulous. Because that would be the Jim Burgess we had expected that he was doing a big drama number. And After a while, we realized he wasn't come back. John Stiglieri was in the booth saying, "No, you can't use his records." Right. And he quickly scurried Is up. Is that what they said? You can't use hard. his records? He yes. Forbid, he he forbade. Him. Yeah. Yeah. He forbade okay. uh, anyone
2: to touch his his records, yep, and nope. uh, and John was the guardian of that.
0: <laughs> them. Yeah. John was the exactly. And I'm sure John probably felt pretty awkward as he retold the story to us recently. And was yes. There. So I mean, he's in this position where he says, "I felt terrible." I couldn't let them do anything.
2: Right. I mean, talk about like being right on the edge. I mean, he could have like started playing music and become like the darling of the same, been the head DJ for forever after that. I mean, and saved the He's night.
0: Been a lifesaver.
2: Right, right, <laughs> right. But Sharon, it really did. It did uh, open a door for her. The doors like swung open and she was, uh, you know, a headliner DJ. I mean, she was, she's a legend. <laughs> Uh, prior up to that point, but I mean, this this just there made was, her right?
0: There was discussion of Sharon getting her own night, as there mm-hmm. was also discussion of me getting my own night doing lights at that point in time. Nobody right. expected the door to swing open in that way for Sharon. I mean, we knew we were going to be playing in in the imminent future, but boy, yeah, it was all time and place. And isn't so much of life time and place and just you know. Being there and having a little bit of good fortune shine.
2: Yes, yes, and she saved the night. Let's let's call it what it is.
0: Yes, I mean, you know,
2: you think of a full house and uh, no music. Sure she, you know.
0: she stepped up. She was brilliant. You know, we got her enough records so that Marsha could take Jim's records out of the way. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, right. Tell everyone right. how long was the music off? That uh, after Robbie uh, after um. Jim it probably
0: Pitch. seemed like forever, but it probably wasn't any more than 10 or 15 minutes.
1: That's a long time in a nightclub. That's an well, eternity, it oh, my was God. A
0: long, it, was, <laughs> it was three big flights of stairs and all the way down towards Second Avenue to get up to Mark's apartment.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it probably wasn't more than 15 minutes, but like it, it just dead air in a nightclub with a full house. I mean, I was gone. I was in a taxi on my way home by then
0: what's that you literally left then you, you left sick oh you i left, left.
2: i left i really had a bad feeling i i did not know how it was going to play out and i just thought it was going to get really really nasty or something something bad was going to happen you it you
1: was just a- to our stories brings this out i love to our stories for this so you turned to you you said i'm out just yeah dashing for the door out the door you go and there I go stop nobody knows it was uh you know I mean if you're I mean most
2: DJs that have a very acute uh sense of like intuition and uh they can read a room and uh yeah I just had a <clears throat> I just had a feeling that uh I needed to go now of course nothing bad happens but at the same time my memory of that night is crystallized as a very specific part of the night of course Sharon, I'm sure, was wonderful, but I remember Jim's part of the night, and that's all. And so that that me be special.
0: It's entirely possible that it could have really gone the other way if it had been an additional 15 or 20 minutes before the first record was put on. You Mm -hmm. know, you had, I think that you could get well over a thousand on that dance floor, at any one time. I'm not sure what the actual capacity was, but there were a few thousand people in the club that night. Yeah. And, and you know, (laughs) and everybody was in their own little trip and their own little mind space and they Uh kind of needed the party to keep going for whatever reason. Um, and yeah, I'm sure it could have turned quite ugly. Had it been, uh, have we not been able to get such quick access to a stack of records to at least begin the ball rolling?
2: Oh yeah, it's one of those legends that you know. Now looking back on it, it's like if things hadn't played out the way they did, uh, it would have been drastically different.
0: Uh, very drastically, you're right. Yeah. And and if that had happened, then good call on you for getting the f home. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: I didn't know how it played out until I guess the next day, and I just um, talked to man, somebody. Like my friends would say, "Honey, I need my sleep. I'm out. <laughs> So, wait, go. so here we go. <coughs> HIV begins and because you know, the 80s stream on and the club business is changing. I remember Marsha mentioning Rebelle opens a palladium, Saint is still going. And mm-hmm. every year they send out their membership drive. What happens the last year?
2: The last you mean the year closed?
1: Yes. Well, of course.
2: <clears throat> membership had declined and declined because uh, uh, more and more of the membership were sadly dying. You know, I mean, and back then there was absolutely no treatment. Uh, many people went into the hospital once and you, that was it, it was over. Uh, and um, so by 1988, the writing was kind of on the wall. They tried different alternatives, they opened uh, straight nights on Fridays and whatnot. And they'd added liquor to boost revenue, but it still was, you know, it's a very expensive operation to run, especially something on that mammoth scale. So they had the last party and it was decided by Bruce, who was the impresario of the club, who really was the driving creative force of the whole place. Uh, And he knew when it was time to close the curtain and uh, he announced a massive party was called the last party. It was to be 40 hours long. And they were bringing in, there, there's the invitation for it, which is an enormous poster. It's probably about three feet by four feet long. Uh, and I have it in my bedroom, as a matter of fact. Uh, so this party was 40 hours nonstop from, I guess, Saturday, Saturday midnight till Monday noon, something like that. And uh, 10 of the most popular DJs from the entire run of the club uh, were booked to play. Uh, I've not worked in New York I'd, I'd re- well I'd left New York I with the thought of retiring from the business but that didn't play out quite the way I planned uh, I couldn't stay out of the music business so I I returned relatively quickly because uh, too many people made offers I couldn't refuse but uh, anyway so I came back to New York to play the final set uh, which was a terrific honor to be asked to actually closed the club and put the place to bed uh once and for all and uh so that was um, i'd say i think that was probably 8 a.m till noon on monday and you'd think it was saturday night new year's eve of course the place was so jam-packed i can remember in the booth playing the records and it, fe- it felt like or, or it looked like the turntables were doing this were were like bobbing up and down <clears throat> in reality what I found out later is that the entire dome, which is the dance floor and the, and the dome over it, that's what was moving. And the turntables were the only things that were steady because they were on a 1500 pound concrete block uh, supported by pneumatic shocks. So uh, that's how crowded it was. That's how much uh, movement was going on in this place. It, I don't think I'd ever seen it that densely crowded. And, and even in spite of that, everyone, it, you know not feeling crushed it's wonderful harmony which was a great aspect of that club being round and no corners and it was just a great design but uh closing the club was um of course very overwhelming uh people were crying people were hugging uh it was very profound uh marlena shaw came on after i played my last record which was jimmy ruffin <clears throat> and um it was just one of those unforgettable nights, what you call disco history. I mean, nothing has nothing has matched that uh, that I've ever witnessed. Um, and uh, yeah, very honored to have been like a, a keystone of that night. Sure. What made you leave
1: um, playing music for? The, okay. for a uh, moment. What's that? For a short period, because it wasn't that long. No, it wasn't that long, but it was.
2: Uh, very honest with, you know, very honest and sincere intention of, of getting into a different career. Um, at the time, I'd say probably around 85 or something, 84, 85, I was like so in demand and so at the top of my game and so, uh, you know, popular and everyone was tugging at me. Um, I had observed since I first started working in the clubs that, you know, DJs have a sort of a career arc. And so many of them, probably most of them, I'd say, uh, you know, they'd get to a point where they peak, and then uh, after a while, you know, uh, they'd either burn out or they would get uh, disenchanted with the club business or what have you. Uh, their popularity would would start to slip, and then suddenly, you know, what really what really kind of you know yeah. drove it home was that uh, Bobby DJ Bobby Godadaro, who was uh, you know one of the all-time greats. Um, he started doing, he was working at the Anvil, which is a great club and nothing to, you know, take away from the Anvil. It was an amazing club. I I loved going there, but I mean, you know, I thought, you know, how are the mighty fallen? And, and do I want that to happen to me? And I do want, do I want that as part of my life story? Uh, so I wanted to, I wanted to leave the business while I was at the top. Now it's really the driving, you know, motive for, for uh, retiring, and uh, so I relocated back here to Florida after thinking about Houston and uh, San Francisco and several other options uh, as far as moving. And um, so I came back to South Florida, and uh, um, was fully, you know, fully with the intention of uh, starting something, something completely new, and having a little time to, you know, and, and money to just sort of float for a while. But the offers kept coming. And, uh, you know, the thing is, I was honest with myself after about four months or something of being idle. I, I said to myself, you know, there's really nothing out there that's inspiring me the way, you know, performing, the way music uh, has done to me. And it's just, you know, it's just inside me that, that just drive to, to pull off an amazing night and just, you know, discover new songs and share them with the crowd. So um, that's when I kind of came to the realization that uh, music was my destiny. So I got back into it and I started working pretty much a a residency at Trocadero. Um, And I was being flown out like every Friday and working every Saturday night for about six months. And um, by then I knew that, you know, I was going to, I was going to do this pretty much permanently. Um, And uh, so I started working at the Copa in Fort Lauderdale, got a, a residency there for, until they sold the club actually. And um, I worked there in Key West and then i go back to Fire Island every summer. Uh, and, you know, fast forward to the present day. Now, of course, you know, COVID, not to mention COVID or anything, but before, up till that point, uh, I've been keeping busy um, doing, you know, doing the music business. And on top of all that, I have had 10 years uh, for XM. So I'm just about to celebrate My tenth anniversary there was a weekly broadcast, and I never even had a residency in the last ten years. You know, thank you, thanks, thanks. Very excited about that, and and it's really great to to kind of open up my my exposure um, because you know working in a club you have a few thousand or a special event a few thousand people uh, that get to hear you, but now I'm coast to coast, and uh, and since I'm not working for dance floors particularly, I can I can include music that is um, you know, not necessarily floor fillers, you know, and but at the same time, educate, you know, the, the audience as to how amazing, uh, and how broad spectrum disco was and dance music just everywhere, you know, and, uh, that's what keeps, you know, such a challenge, uh, on the radio it's, it, and it's still so much fun. I mean, my God, I put together a show, uh, for next week. And it starts out actually with uh, Mary, Wil- Mary Wilson because in honor of her passing. But uh, it's down tempo for the most part, and it, it's just all over the place. But at the same time, it's got a, a very specific flow, and it, it it really came out great.
1: Awesome. Well, that's great. No, I have checked out the shows; they're really great. And I also heard you live, so I know how well you play. That's <laughs> Thank why you. A big glass. Well, you sleep. can't be you can't be really
2: great unless you had some really awful nights also to uh,
1: makes you to better. balance it out. Right. That? That's what makes you a better DJ when you learn to figure out, OK, wasn't it uh, tonight? But we'll, yeah. we'll get through. It we're we're going to do that again. <laughs> we'll get through it together. Right. Exactly. What's going on in your mind? That's the thing. See, people don't understand that. They don't think you have issues or problems going on. Or you're angry with the ownership of the club. Lord knows what's going on, and you got to be all smiles, and you got to yeah. play at your best. Yes, and yes. All the time, we feel that way. I'll you know? tell
2: you though. I mean, I've I've seen DJs that that do uh, manifest their personal feelings onto their audience, onto their dance floor, and I'm like aghast. It's like, okay, so you're having a bad night, honey. I'm sorry, but you know, you're hired to entertain these That's people. Funny. They don't deserve it whatever, you know, if you're in a snit about something or the manager stiffed you or whatever, uh, you know, sorry, that doesn't, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's show business. And if you're on Broadway, you're playing eight shows a week and no if, ands, or buts. And it's the same in a club. As far as I'm concerned, I have a very strong work ethic. If I'm booked to work, you know, to spin, I'm going to be there. I'm not going to miss it. And I'm not going to
0: give a half assed you know, second rate show. You're exactly right. We are the performers. We are the artists. And it's showtime. And you go on. Our job is to give everyone a good time. You Mm -hmm. know, And, and if we're not having a good time, we're not giving them a good time. And if you bring your misery with you to work, then how can you exude joy and fun? You have to. You know, and I, and I must say, Robbie, uh, I have always had fun working with you, and that is, I think, one of the key elements for me as a lighting person, because, yeah, I'd see it musically, and you do have a lot more forgiveness in doing lighting than you do in playing music. And having mm-hmm. DJed. I can tell you it's very hard to time a bathroom break if you're DJing, and much <laughs> easier if you're doing lights, just right. as an example. Um, but the rapport that one has in the booth, the chemistry that we have, the interaction that we have as artists in the booth working, that also goes out to the floor. And and artists even more important than getting the paycheck at the end of the week is the feeling of satisfaction that you've not only had a good time, you've given all these other people a good time and there's nothing like seeing a room of a thousand people, all smiling, all having joy, all having fun in unison on one energy plane. And, and there's that, that's a sense of satisfaction that money just can't buy. It's a joy. Absolutely. If your heart's in this
2: business and, and the three of us right here, and I'm sure many that are listening and watching, uh, if your heart's in your work, then there are no excuses, and you know there is no second best, or I'll try harder next time. Yeah, it's it's kind of that's your default setting, and yeah, it, it's I've been very lucky to work with you so much, and at different venues with the different you know different formats going on, and also you know special events that uh, you know we do have such good chemistry, you and I, um, that we have built on all these years that you know it's it's special, it's very special. Totally,
0: indeed. indeed. I find that I mean, if I have to I get up every morning and I express my gratitude to the universe for giving me this joy and these blessings to have had a great career, to have had great friends, to have had friends that have lasted not days or months, but literally decades. I mean, yeah. Robbie, we were both, what, 21 and 22 when we met or something silly. Yeah, like that.
1: Right. And you're yeah. 29 now. That's, you know, <laughs> That's both right. And- that's right. But you know, and and that's the music that does that. I'm being serious now,
0: because we've you know known each other know eight what? years, right,
1: Masha? So I say, what? We've known each other eight years. Eight, eight years, indeed. Yeah. under eight. Eight, eight hundred years, years of technology there, right between these two. But check yeah. it out. The music, you never, uh, are, you never get old with the music. That's No, the we yeah. Don't. Your brain is still saying we can do this. It's crazy. I know.
0: Energy flows. And a probably not so very well-known fact about Mr. Robbie Leslie high energy. He is one of the most astute, well-versed R&B music fans of just about any DJ I've ever worked with. And he will pull out. I mean, he took up where Roy left off when it came to pulling out some old classic R&Bs.
2: Very high praise indeed. Thank you. Um, you know, Mike, yeah, I definitely there's there's uh, some of my blood definitely is black. I'm sure of it because yeah, I definitely. How
1: does that go from that to being high, Mr. High Energy? That's what I a know, way. right? That's how that, that happen?
2: You can play like a, if you can play a long set, you can cover all your bases. I mean, you really can. Uh, and uh, oh God, I mean, man, there's there's some. There's some songs that give me goose flesh, you know, that uh, that I hear that by real, really soul artists and R and B artists. That I mean, nothing can touch it. And you know, you can get that kind of response like late at night by playing one of those records uh, that matches any any hit, any ABBA record you can play in the middle of the night. You know, since you brought so up sure all your love on me, yeah.
0: you Just you yeah. just get that high energy at eight o'clock in the morning when people are stomp into you know the four tops
2: right right yeah i still love moton i mean to this day uh i, I was just driving home from my shot which i still don't have any side effects thank god
1: um yet? I'm surprised you're not speaking Chinese.
0: It it takes a number it takes a number of hours. You can yeah. get a sore arm come uh-huh. morning time, but it takes about four. But
1: then we caught you before that happens because I don't know if you're going to want to talk after. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right.
2: But I was listening to um uh Papa Was a Rolling Stone. It, it came on my my serious uh channel uh driving home, and it was like I s- still get this visceral response to some of that old, wonderful old Motown song you know music, and uh. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, one of my catchphrases is never underestimate the power of music. And I so firmly believe that, um, it just, first of all, it, it, it evokes memories for, for each individual that are completely unique, but also it's the closest thing we have to a time machine. Uh, you can hear a song that can instantly take you back to a club and a person and a, uh, a, a season or, you know, love affair. Um, so many, so many different things, and, and really, just in an instant, it can transport you mentally to that, to that time. Uh, music does that. It's, it's, it's really remarkable.
0: Universal language.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And really, you know, I mean, it, it, you're right. Music is the one thing that can just pluck at your heart springs and pick up emotions that you have long forgotten about just by connecting that little memory um yeah and and you know i remember so many songs from the 60s listening to on the am radio in the car with my parents and stuff and it just amazes me how many of them i remember the words to (laughs) like like, holy moly but it it it, music just you know it can put a smile on your face or it can make you cry it's Mm -hmm. it's a special special um it, it, emotion evoking mechanism. And yeah. you know. and also I know that music as they've done
2: studies, uh, those with the dementia and Alzheimer's um, music to have this power over all other faculties uh, to the brain um, that will reach places that other things, drugs or other therapies can't reach. And I think that's pretty amazing. So that kind of reinforces what I said.
0: Also, with some animals.
2: Yes. 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 Mine is right off camera, right here. Yeah, I get, right
1: Can you here. I know, I see him?
2: <laughs> oh, you do. Okay. <laughs> My
0: God,
1: where is he? There he is. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. We noticed that also. You're very proud of of car collecting and re- restoration work. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, what's going yeah. on there?
2: Uh, I've always had a classic car in my life since, uh, since high school. Um, I bought a 58 Cadillac back in 1973 that I kept for a long time, like 16, 17 years. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I I just love the design of older cars, uh, particularly of the fifties and sixties. Um, now I have a 67 Cadillac convertible. It's great having a convertible. It's the first convertible I've owned. And, uh, I've had this now for 30, 31 years. I bought it in 1990. Um, but yeah, it's just great. I mean, I, I love Detroit styling from that period. I mean, the cars were not necessarily safe, but they looked fantastic. Safety uh, was not first on the list. It was, right. <laughs> no, it's all about styling. Yeah. Lots of Chrome. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hobby. It's a, like a pastime. It, it is, unfortunately, it's rather costly, but oh, um, it gives me a lot of pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I just love, uh, I love you know having having it to toy around with. Uh, so yeah, that's one of my one of my little passions. Yeah.
1: Something I wanted to spend on my mind. I'm going to ask you before we go. When you first started from Twelve West audition to where you are today, did you ever dream that all of us would be trotting around the globe mm. playing this music that we do?
2: I had no idea it would reach the scope that it has. And uh, certainly the, the directions it's taken, uh, if you, you know, the fact that that mainstream clubs no longer operate on a, like a, you know, weekly schedule, but special events are so off the charts as far as size and dynamics and, and technology and uh, that people will travel, you know, take jet planes and travel long distances to, attend these events, uh, no, would never would never have really seen that progression except in the slow and methodical turns that it has taken over the decades. Um, I'm very grateful that I got to see it and experience it in its infancy and uh, from both sides of the booth, uh, on the dance floor particularly and, and in the booth. Um, and uh, of course, there's nothing like a residency, you know, uh, these big parties, you know, being hired to do these enormous events are is great, but, um, you know, you don't develop the friendships with the staff and you don't, you don't have a core audience that you're, you know, kind of, kind of keying into. Uh, but yeah, very grateful for the ride I've been on all these years and certainly happy and blessed that I've been uh, able to support myself for God, 40 years,
1: you know, incredible. Incredible. You know, one thing I forgot to ask you was because Marsha filled in a lot of the Studio Fifty Four stuff. People know you played. Which nights were you playing on when you went studio? I did studio
2: on basically on Thursdays and Sundays for either John Blair or Michael Fesco. I occasionally worked on the week Fridays or Saturdays, but more as a fill-in. And uh, I actually spanned. I mean, I when I started there, Steve was still coming, although he was no longer um, like uh, legally like the owner of the place, but he was still the major influence. So, I mean, I had him and his entourage in the, in the DJ booth early on that would drive me crazy. Uh, I just don't know how these other DJs put up with such silliness. Like, you know, uh, it just was nuts. I, I remember Halston was, would always get in front of my records and I could never get around him so find, what
1: are you trying to do? You try to, wholesome, move the F out of the way. You can't right.
2: well, that. You, you I'm, see- a, I'm a New England boy. I would never dare say that to him. So, you know, but, but, uh, you know, it was so distracting and I'm, I'm, a, I'm like, I take this very seriously. So the next record has got to be the perfect choice. And it's not the perfect choice. If it's the second perfect choice, you know, that's not good enough. Um, but uh, so I worked for, for Steve kind of moving out and moving on. And then I worked with my, Mark Fleischman. And then at the end, uh, Frank Cashman, who was the front man for, uh, I think most people think the mob, uh, or organized you know, crime in some way. Uh, he was the, the third uh, iteration of the club. And so I kind of spanned all those three. And uh, Marcia, I remember saying that there's nothing like the initial you know, Studio 54 or version one and that's absolutely true, but they each had their own magic and, and the club still had a, a incredible cachet, uh, when, you know, at the end of the day, um, and, you know, without a doubt that has opened more doors for me, uh, professionally, uh, than any other gig the Saint, Saint so many people have no clue what it is or what it was. Um, it's only a very specialized, you know, people really into nightlife, um, so, yeah, thank you, Studio 54, for. Well, I for, said the
1: same thing yeah. because I came in in the Cashman end when they brought Larry in and they had Louis Vega and Freddie Bastone. I was playing there for Bear Jones. So I understand. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. 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 Wait a I didn't have the Richard Long sound system. I had the Claire Brothers sound system that sounded like a radio in the place. <laughs> so I was like. I didn't realize this. They removed the old sound system? They moved, by the time they brought Larry and they had the Claire Brothers sound. Well, word had it. The system did a disappearing act.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> there what was those? a big word that the mafia, well, the mafia was involved. Money was laundered, all kinds of stuff. But you mentioned Frank Cashman. Okay. So yes. by the time we get in there, it's already Claire Brothers sound. Yeah. The booth has a glass around it. It's not. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. My gosh. Oh, yeah. And do you yeah. remember like what year roughly that would be? 788 around that time. And, okay.
2: Yeah. yeah the, I left I left New York uh, November of 86.
1: Yeah. yeah. So it's right after yeah. you. So I remember I got in, I got, I, I worked in those days. I worked for Bear Jones. He was a promoter, had sure. a following around New York and I was his DJ. So make a long story short, they put the glass up, all that stuff. The Richard Long RLA sound system, abortioned, gone. And wow. then the declared, Brothers. it sounds like a big-ass radio in the place. So you know how that system sounded. You remember. The yeah. System. Did not sound like that when, when, no, no.
2: Well, to this day, I think the hearing on my right ear is slightly diminished because of that horn that Richard yeah. had, like, literally right there, because it was fastened to the balcony, you right. know, edge. And uh, I I didn't need monitor speakers because that thing was so damn loud. But of course, yeah. you can't turn it off. It's no. there for the night, you know. Yeah. We
0: had an RLA sound system
1: at the Palladium.
2: Yes, that's, that's right. The- that's right. That was a magnificent club. My God, so beautiful.
1: Yeah, I, really I loved really working
2: really
1: there. But well, that was the last RLA system in New York. Really. So. Last installation. Yeah. The last. Oh. I believe it was, yes. Kenny Powers mm-hmm. on that one. Kenny pa- right? Kenny Powers and was it Austin? Derek Austin. Uh, oh, Austin, yeah. I yes. think so. Austin, yes.
0: Austin, yeah. Austin Green. Yeah. Austin's not here in Florida. I connected with him a number of years ago. Yeah, was he was
1: like, part, part of Richard's last last stand. And then Richard died. Well, Michael Brody died from Garage. Richard Long died from from RLA. They were all dying. Bruce Mailman, I mm-hmm. think. Right around too long after all the great club owners were dying and sound. Yeah. 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 It really kind
2: of was the final nail in the coffin. But I mean, culturally, New York City was, as you were saying earlier, New York back in those days was like the wild west to some degree. And uh, now, of course, rents being what they are and, and real estate, you know, I mean, you just, it just is not a viable way to use space on manhattan island anymore really um but culturally you know everything changes you can't you cannot turn back the clock you can't pretend that you know if you open a club it would be packed it's just you know those days have changed uh,
1: that may change soon everyone's dying to go out again now because now they can't go out i'm open to it i'll take what comes sure
0: The politics of the day also changed in the late 80s, because after 86, you had a lot more of AIDS that was going around. You had Giuliani that was now coming in. You had the after hours places that were being busted. You had all of this fear, most of it around AIDS, but, you know, it was the cause of everything. And so you had this very anti nightclub, uh, large establishment movement. Um, you know, Palladium was, I think, the, lar- the last of the biggies, the big dance places in the city as well. And, and, you know, Peter Gation gave up the limelight to go run Palladium after my tenure there ended in like 91. So, you know, it kind of evolved and moved. But I think that the politics of the late 80s changed nightlife more th- than anything and that that freedom that abandonment that that Renaissance wild west that we had, mm-hmm. I think that ended by the mid-80s. And yeah, oh yeah, uh, yeah. The times when you could go to four different types of venues in the course of one night and have four different, completely different cultural experiences all mm-hmm. within the one city. I mean Manhattan was an amazing, amazing place.
1: But you know what? To add to your thing, Marcia, it really was when the bathhouses closed. That was really the big change. When Koch closed. Well, that was concurrent.
0: Bath- that
1: was definitely concurrent that was one of the in, first the
0: same time, Lenny. It all kind of happened around the same time. Um, you know, you had the bathhouses closing. You had the big mega clubs that were being shut down. You had Giuliani, who was, who was knocking down everything. Oh. And... and you know, it, it was just not cool. Uh, and that was the late 80s. And I remember that my club resume in the 80s, and the 90s, it, it couldn't get me. It would get me arrested before it would get me a job. It was a good thing I was able to segue into special events mm-hmm. and then get in, involved in what became entertainment but actually entertainment, lighting, and architecture. Uh, I couldn't get arrested with the club resume I had. It wasn't until 54 celebrated, I guess it's 20 or 25th anniversary that it became cool again, that right. I had right. a direct right. pedigree. Yeah.
2: There's definitely been a resurgence uh, in interest in disco and, and very well deserved. I mean, it's not just because I happen to love it, uh, the, you know, all the different formats of, of disco, but um, you know, I mean, the creativity that went into that stuff. Oh my God. I mean, you know, it's, It's amazing. It's really impressive. And uh, so much musicianship is involved. We're talking about session players, we're talking about vocalists, arrangers, uh, even right down to mastering the vinyl discs. Um, You know, I mean, it was just a
0: a pinnacle. I can tell you, working with the Joe Long Sound on the productions that we did, we utilized for Hallelujah 2000, the London Philharmonic to do all of the orchestra places. We right. did the rhythm tracks. We did those in New York. We brought in the Sound of Philadelphia rhythm section. Uh-huh. Uh, who did we have doing over percussion la- overlays? Peter Whitehead, Peter Davis. Peter Whitehead, one of the writers of the original Village People material, and they were background percussionists on all the Lorelli productions. You know, we had Luther Vandross as a background singer. We were in the studio doing our productions, and the next studio over was Ashford and Simpson doing... Diana Ross and the Candy Staten and their own album, and you had such an interconnection. You had, yeah. you know, musicians that would go from one session to another. I mean, on, no one you know, knew who Luther Vandross was wait, wait,
1: to wait to I got to everybody. Career, she's talking about Hallelujah Two Thousand on Casablanca Records. The own the owner of Neil Neil Bogart was the owner of this label. She's talking about another historical moment. I'm going. She's not telling you the other part. She's just telling you how they're jumping and doing this. Casablanca was a big driving force to the disco thing. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, I don't know, better than that. South Casablanca, West End, so was Atlantic Records. Like Atlantic
0: had a huge disco division. Almond Artigan was huge. In fact, the first record we did, Midnight Rhythm, was on Atlantic. That's right, Bobby's point about all the collaboration and all the interconnectivity and all of the artistry that went on. I mean, it was an amazing bed of creativity. There was ingenuity that that you had the freedom to come up with. I know when we did My Baby's Baby at Sigma Sound Studios, we wanted a sound effect. And the only way we got it was by shooting off a fire extinguisher. For that recording (laughs) session, we wasted every single fire extinguisher within the Sigma studios because we needed that effect. And that's what we got it from. Um, You know, we had all kinds of ridiculous things in the studio to get the clang on working and slaving. It was chains in water. We put chains on top of the keys the strings in the piano to get the clankety clankety of of the, the, the piano. I mean, you know, and, and it was wonderful because that's what you did in the studio. Part of it was almost like a Folly studio where you would use whatever you could to get what you wanted out of the artist or out of that production. It's,
2: it's like wonderful. innovation. Innovation was very, was very hot. And, and, you know, people were creative. I mean, creativity just was off the charts. Yeah.
1: And also the ones that are very creative, like the jazz musicians are like disco. Oh God, no, I ain't doing that. Right. And yet,
2: play. one of my favorite old records was by Richard T, who's like a, a jazz legend. I mean, there's so many. Herbie yes. Hancock, my God!
0: You say, know, they've all dabbled. Well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, on and on. There's a lot of crossover. Look, let's face it: good music is good music. Period. End. If good. it's got to right. be you can dance to it, period. End. That's right. Yeah, that said it all.
1: Yeah, she pretty yeah. much come that up. But Bill, guys, incredible. Incredible. I can't, I can't thank you enough. And everybody's just blown away to hear all these great things. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I apologize for my crazy schedule today. Who would have thought my shot would have taken six hours to like. Complete you the entire lucky. What?
1: You're lucky you got it today.
2: Well, yeah, I'm very lucky. and uh, Yeah. I've, I've been waiting for a long time. And, and so, yeah, it's very grateful for sure. And,
0: and yeah. you've got one more and I must say, I'm very happy to say that I got both of mine. And I yeah. passed my incubation period, and I think I'm now fully immune.
2: So here's, here's our PSA from True House Stories. Get your shot, everybody.
1: Yes. Don't right. mess and up. And even if I don't want to take my shot, I'm going to have no choice because I ain't going to be able to travel to go play anywhere. Oh, if, that's right. Right. You need that
2: documentation.
1: Yeah. Passport, right? Same with yeah. you. Yeah. You're going to be looking. Uh, Robbie, show us your passport with the QC code. Right. Uh, scan, yeah. right? <laughs> that's right yeah, so there you have it
0: absolutely yeah. And, yeah. and you know i mean if, if that's what it takes to get us back to some semblance of normalcy if that's what it takes to get us to have live events um to yeah but Martian, to we it. need the
1: live events i'm Love dying it. without it i mean i this is what we do this is what we do yeah 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 but i mean people i mean just
2: humanity needs live events i mean it's intrinsic in our in our DNA. I mean, we've been deprived for over a year now. It's uh and it's showing, I mean, you know, uh across the board. Um yeah, it's just it's the nature of of humankind to to interact and be close together and meet new people and and socialize. And um, you know, that's I think not having it for a year has really brought it home like how important it is, even though it's it seems subtle, but at the same time it's it's absolutely essential
0: i would like to think at the end of the day it's made us a more thoughtful kinder society Uh, yeah what we have missed and how important not just the human contact but the art aspect of it the joy Mm -hmm. aspect of it yeah the little things there's only so much you get from uh from from the virtual content.
1: Oh, I hate it. So, I can't even stand you we're know, even doing this. Marsh, I can't even stand. I mean, I love interviewing. Don't get me wrong, everyone. But you do very well. Me. You do very well. I saw Robbie or Bobby. I would be hugging them. We all yeah. kiss each other. And this is what this is about. Mm. And the, I miss that with the music, but just seeing all of you together. And yeah. we all do, but think about it. If I this get is- away?
0: 20 years ago, we wouldn't have the technology to do this. No. Yeah. Well, how yeah. fortunate we are that our technology has given us a place where we can still be connected in this horrific year of disconnect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I it, Zoom came out with this feature with the flicking of the cameras. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to give this a roll. Let's give yeah. it a shot. And so far, I like how it's going. It's really- this is heaven sent. It really is. The timing
2: is amazing. God, I mean, yeah.
1: I sent this at the right time. I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll sign up for this.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah.
1: So we're well, going to keep hearing you every week on the radio, religiously through satellite radio. That would be great. I, I, I'm so grateful that, that
2: people are very interested and, and are very faithful listeners. Uh, Every Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. Pacific. Oh, Robbie, why, doesn't they let, why don't they let you speak at all? Um, actually, I started out 10 years ago doing voiceovers at the beginning and at the end of my shows. And because the other two DJs, they wanted a uniform program for the three nights of like uh, mixed music um, each night. Tony, Tony, uh, oh, John, and myself. Um, they decided to drop, you know, drop the intro and outro format. And, um, I'll tell you, I used to labor over the the two or three minute intros, trying to be Casey Kasem and outros that I would spend like hours scripting and doing that, that? doing the, uh, the intro and then running exactly. And never satisfied and like doing retakes and retakes. Uh, so I have a great deal of respect for people that can do on air speaking. And you know, keep it going and keep it uh interesting and, and flow and not stutter and not uh hem and haw through the whole so, thing. So,
1: write you on this, this new app called Clubhouse that's that's through Apple. Can you would you join it because this is a new thing now? And actually, it's like being on forums and you could speak in panels, it's incredible. Clubhouse, yes, through Apple, it is huge. I will look into it. And we're going to be doing a True House Stories wrap-up shows, and we'd love to have you on because you know what happens: people can come up, put their hand up, and you can see on the phone. You got to have an iPhone, right? And they can ask you questions, and you can and answer. Like they uh, probably want to ask questions from this show that they sure. would up to be able to say, "Robbie, can we ask you, please?" You know? <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Yeah, that's
2: a great, a great inclusion format.
1: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, cool. How about it is and and marsh the same with you because both of you i've said it it's like the reference library of dance disco everything lights to music right there you two have it all god it, it's really interesting like it you know for, to my way
2: of thinking studio 54 is not that ancient history i mean it's you know it's within my generation uh and yet on social media i will hear these tall tales and like things that are like so wrong and so untrue uh, and I just of course I don't have the time to correct them all <laughs> or you know and I don't want to start any punks but you know some people just have no clue what it was like uh, and it's kind of too bad and, and I know nightlife is is a is a kind of a private thing it's nighttime and people are doing their own personal things but uh, yeah I mean it's um, I I'd hate to hear that history be kind of warped or or lost over time because it, it it was and remains to be you know just
1: incredible. One more right. time, that's why I created the program True House Stories to clean up this this thing. And we thank you.
0: Yeah, we get
1: to hear like- you. I, I went after certain people because they don't get to hear you, Robbie. They don't get to hear Marcia's story like this.
2: Right, and that's true. I mean, we we're silent. We we let our music and lights speak for us and. That's not exactly, that's not totally who we are. That's a facet of who we are. But so it's great to, to have this forum, to, to be able to kind of flesh out the real people behind, you know, the names. Yeah. It's,
0: it's been fun sharing all the stories and the little anecdotes. And, you know, we've we've really scratched the surface mm-hmm. of all of the wonderful little bits and pieces that are out there, but it's, just, it's been just a delight to share some of the inside track with the audience to give them a taste of maybe for the younger folks, what it was like to be in this moment of ecstasy without the passion or the pain or with the passion, but without the pain um, (laughs) back in the 70s and and, you know, to share the stories and to try to keep the spirit alive, because you can't really recreate the era that has passed, but certainly you can do your best to keep it revived, to keep that legacy going. Um, You know, I know Robbie and I are both fond of 40s music, and I don't think that either of us could imagine what it would be like to be in the time of the roaring 20s or be in the time of the heyday of the 40s with, you know, Glenn Miller and, and, and the Gershwins and all of that. But we have our own memories of what it was like in the 70s to be at the peak of the renaissance of new york nightlife and i think yeah. probably nightlife in general most nightlife was fashioned after new york nightlife as opposed to the other way around yeah absolutely and, yeah you know, right. this, this has been fun it's been great to tell the stories it's been great to tell a few behind the scenes on un- before heretofore unknown tidbits and saving all of it with- totally I'm
1: for the next ever grateful and thank you to both of you for spending your time with us thank you, you. Mm-hmm. We it's you been fun. great it's been great it's been great
2: fun we'll do a part two in a year or so but hopefully by then we'll be we'll all be in the same
1: room yeah that would be awesome right maybe the yeah. show really pick up you never know right fantastic <laughs> thank
0: have you have a great this has
1: been great thank you guys, I, i'm like sitting here going oh my god wonderful stuff wonderful thank Not you thank you thank you for yeah. this is the whole deal and good luck to both you we will be seeing more of you i know thank that. you I over till it's over robbie and thanks I'm so happy. much Are my you? dog is so happy he gets thank to go you. out now <laughs> take care everyone good night around the world right. next thank week all for don't forget all the best. Get the thank you robbie thank you Marsha. take care everyone good night from true house stories see you peace love